created live on Fireside. The following program was recorded live on Fireside Chat. If you'd like to participate in these chats, join us every Thursday at noon Eastern Time at firesidechat.com slash scottmonte. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty, and if you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I regularly write about these topics, please go ahead to scottmonty.com and check it out. This week we're talking about wisdom. Now, of the many topics related to leadership, this is probably the most heady. Philosophers since Socrates' time have been postulating about epistemology. From Socrates to Plato, from Plato to Aristotle, and then on and on through the ages. And throughout history, people have looked to leaders as fonts of wisdom. Sometimes the accolade is warranted, and sometimes it's a false promise. So why is wisdom important, and how is wisdom different from knowledge? Can we ever make a claim to have wisdom? And how can we recognize the wisdom in others? These are some of the questions ahead of us, along with others that you might like to add along the way. To enter into a conversation with Tom Morris is like stepping back into the agora of ancient Athens. Tom has become one of the most active public philosophers in the world due to his unusual ability to bring the greatest wisdom of the past into the challenges of the present. He's the author of over 30 groundbreaking books, including If Aristotle Ran General Motors, If Harry Potter Ran General Electric, Socrates in Silicon Valley, and, most recently, Plato's Lemonade Stand, as well as over a half-dozen novels. Moreover, Tom is a legendary speaker whose electrifying talks re-engage people around their deepest values and reignite their passion for work and life, performance, leadership, success, change, commitment. These are some of the attributes that come out of Tom's talks. Imagine the wisdom of Yoda, Gandalf, and Dumbledore all rolled together and linked to the spirit and energy of the world's most winning athletic coaches. Stir in the unexpected humor of a Jerry Seinfeld or Jimmy Fallon, and now you've got an idea of what Tom's audiences experience. Tom Morris, welcome to timeless leadership. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be here, Scott. I'm a first-timer here on Fireside, but I'll follow you anywhere you go. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind, Tom. Well, we have had lots of interesting discussions here um, on, well, on, on various uh, interview shows. I know Joe Jaffe has his regular show. We, you and I pop on there. We have oh, yeah. these discussions. But for those not familiar, what is a public philosopher? It's a it's a good question, you know. Uh, uh, an unemployed person, most folks would think. Uh, 
You know, I was a professor at Notre Dame for uh, 15 years, and uh, I thought I was going to be in a classroom all my life. It was uh, it was a great place. I, lo- I loved being there, but uh, some business groups gave me a, a call and said, "Look, uh, did the did the great philosophers have anything to say about about ethics in everyday life?" Or another guy called um, a Buick dealer, and he said, um, "You know, we have this Midwest regional." Buick and Oldsmobile Dealers Association meeting every year, and we have motivational speakers, and they they always say about the same thing, you know, set goals, believe in yourself, you can do it. He said, did the did the great philosophers have anything to say about success? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me let me look into it. So before you know it, I was speaking to this group of uh, of Oldsmobile and Buick dealers, and they went nuts. And they told their friends, and I got other invitations. So pretty soon, before you knew it, I was going all over the world, speaking to every kind of group you could imagine about the wisdom of the ages. My wife would pick me up from the airport from a speech. She would take me to Philosophy 101. I'd teach class, have lunch, teach another class. She'd take me back to the airport. It got really crazy. And so at a certain point, I said to myself, you know what? There hasn't been a public philosopher unattached to a university, just out where people are, since Ralph Waldo Emerson 150 years ago. Maybe maybe it's time to do that. So I guess I was the first person ever to resign a position as a full professor of philosophy at a great place like Notre Dame and just set up shop as a philosopher and hope that people would find me. And that was 25 years, 26 years ago now. Wow. Well, what a story. Now, <laughs> th- this this is interesting because you, you don't often think of businesses uh, sitting back and, and saying, hmm, you know what we need on staff or what we, <laughs> what we need at our next meeting. We need a philosopher here. Yeah. Yeah. Wor- words never uttered in all of human history. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you do wonder. It, it's funny because for the first five or six years, um, it was all word of mouth and people were just calling me up. And, you know, our CEOs heard about you. Could you come and give us a talk? And then speakers bureaus started calling. Our clients are asking for you. Who are you? <laughs> and then I eventually became an exclusive speaker with the Washington Speakers Bureau. They would pair me with Colin Powell and with George H.W. and Barbara Bush and James Carville and Mary Madeline. And, uh, you know, I was the who's he amongst the who's who. And once they told me at the Washington Speakers Bureau at a big meeting, the head of marketing there said, you know what, you are the hardest speaker to sell of anybody we've ever worked with. Because as soon as we utter the word philosopher, people say, oh, no, oh, no, that's not going to work. She said, but you are the easiest speaker we've ever worked with to resell. And I said, what do you mean? She said, once they get a taste of what philosophy can mean for their their work and their lives, they have to have more. And she said, do you realize that a company that hired you three years ago They've hired you 43 more times in the past three years. Wow. And I said, no, I didn't, I didn't realize that. So, Scott, that's, that's the wild thing. If you just ask a, in a business meeting, hey, do you think we need a philosopher to come by? Most people are going to say, what? But once people are exposed to what philosophy actually involves, they get really excited. Mm. So, yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing experience of discovery for me to see that, you know, maybe I won't turn out like Socrates and be poisoned by public, public demand. You know, it's, uh, it's gone better than that so far. <laughs> I always think of the immortal words of Socrates. I drank what? <laughs> right. Um, well, you have in me a, um, a long ago classics major. So we are Somewhat oh, yeah. kindred spirits here, Tom. I, I am not as adept at philosophy as you. I got enough, just enough to be dangerous. So, <laughs> um, but, but it's interesting to me to hear about how leaders respond to this notion of, yeah, we've got a philosopher available and then how they consume it because philosophy or when you're talking to them about, oh, you know, I'll come in and, and address you about ethics or about uh, practical wisdom. 
or mm-hmm. common sense even. Yeah. Everyone yeah. is probably uh, attuned to say, well, look, I, I have ethics. I, I have wisdom. I have common sense. Yeah. What do I need someone else to come in and right. talk to me about it for? So how do you... How do you address that? How do you overcome that natural disinclination outside of actually just getting in front of them and proving it to them by your your talk? Sure. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Every business, um, whether they make a product or provide a service, every business is really in the human nature business because they're only going to be as good as the people in their company are. And ultimately motivating human beings to feel their best, to be their best, to do their best each and every day is is the job of any leader. And when I can explain, you know, the great philosophers I consult aren't the ones who asked crazy questions about obvious truths, like how do we know we exist? The kind of thing you get in philosophy 101 too often in universities these days. But they ask questions about what motivates people deeply to be and do their best. What what is success? What is fulfillment? What is excellence? And if you can help people think clearly about these things and think a little more deeply about these things than they're accustomed to, then they can make new things happen. So it's funny because one financial services company had me come back and speak to their people, I think it was 68 times. And my joke used to be, well, their financial services company, they're not going to be wasting their money if they don't think, you know, philosophy is doing them any good. Uh, so um, they were investing in their people every time they brought me in to tackle a subject. It, it could be excellence. It could be success. It could be how to deal with difficult change. It could be how to break down walls and build something new in their company, uh, getting people to talk to each other who had never talked to each other before. It could be, um, it could be about partnership and collaboration. I, you know, Scott, whatever I was asked to speak on, I never said, well, I'm not the guy for that. That's not my specialty. You, you're calling the wrong guy. Call somebody else. I would say, okay, let me look into it. So as a result, and this all started about 30 years ago, believe it or not. And as a result, I sort of rediscovered the forgotten side of philosophy, the practical side of philosophy. Because in most university settings, you get the theoretical side of philosophy, epistemology and metaphysics and logic and stuff like that. Uh, Look at the popularity of books about the Stoics right now. When I got started, nobody was writing about the Stoics. Nobody was reading about the Stoic (laughs) philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome. In fact, a 100 years ago, every educated person knew about the Stoics. But then a hundred years had transpired where philosophy took a turn in a very technical direction, kind of an imitation of the natural sciences, you know, very, you know, numbered propositions on the blackboard, extremely complicated arguments for and against some position, but, but falling away from the topics that philosophers used to talk about success and anger and happiness and, and how to deal with disappointment and how to work well with other people in your classics major. You will have studied a lot of the early practical philosophers. And it's funny that I was thrust into kind of rediscovering all this at a time when I couldn't call up anybody and say, Hey, how do I be a public philosopher? How did you do it? Because really nobody else was doing it. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a brave step uh, to take, Tom. (laughs) I mean, you you, you talked about stepping away from uh, the academic world and, uh, you know, kind of going out here on your own. This is uh, it, it's impressive. So, what what do you what do you attribute this recent rise of interest, particularly in Stoic philosophy, to? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. the The new fascination with Stoic philosophy, I think, began at about the time of the Great Recession, our financial meltdown of a few years ago where people felt really out of control. They couldn't control their circumstances. They couldn't control what was happening in the economy. They felt a new fragility of their jobs and their lives. And they heard 
that maybe there were these ancient philosophers who talked about this. I mean, I wrote a book called The Stoic Art of Living that was kind of way ahead of this new trend of interest in the Stoics. And and some people had read that book and said, wow, the Stoics talked all about how to how to turn your attention to the things you can control rather than worrying all the time about things you can't control. Maybe I should look into this. So at a time of great vulnerability in our economy and in our culture, people started discovering or rediscovering these philosophers who talked about the inner resources we need to bring to situations of outer uncertainty and what a difference this can make. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, we all look to control as much as we can. And oh, yeah. particularly, look, over the last year where there's been so much that's been out of control, out of our own control, right? Um, you know, we, we look for these uh, th- these kinds of instances. And, and it really comes, it, it comes from looking within, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And, and to me, that's where a lot of this exploration, at least in early philosophy, began with the exploration of wisdom. You know, where do we look for wisdom? And, and now we're, we're looking for wisdom in all kinds of places. So what, what role does wisdom play in the art of leadership? You know, that's, that's a great question. Um, because you would think that it would have always been the number one topic for leadership development, right? Because who wants a foolish leader? All right. And we all want wise leaders. And when we look around the world, it doesn't look like we have a lot. So it should be a topic at at the center of everyone's attention. But a lot of people, you know, wisdom is one of these words. When you hear it, you kind of think you know what it means. Right. Um, But when you really undergo some Socratic questioning, you know, what exactly is wisdom? It's hard for most people to say. You know, I, I would have said a long time ago, if asked, because people used to ask me, what is philosophy? And I would do the etymological thing, right? I would say, well, the word philosophy comes from two Greek root words, philo and sophia, love of wisdom. Um, and I would say to people, you know, an object of love is an interesting thing. When you lack it, you pursue it. When you have it, you embrace it. So that's what philosophy is. It's the pursuit and embracing of wisdom. And, and they would say, well, what is, what is wisdom? And I would say, okay, um, a long time ago, I, I would, I would say it's insight for living. And then the more I thought about it, the more I came to understand that, well, insight is kind of an intellectual thing. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's embodied insight for living. But, and, and by embodied, I mean, the wise person doesn't just have healthy thoughts. They have healthy emotions and attitudes. Mm. They have healthy perspectives, habits. They have healthy choices and actions. So they embody, there's this thing, insight for living, that a wise person embodies. Now, not perfectly, and the, the ancients had to struggle with this because the Stoics had this idea of the sage, and in Asia, Confucius had this idea of the gentleman, as almost a perfect ideal. So if you had any flaw in you whatsoever, well, you weren't really a sage. You weren't really a gentleman. You you didn't really embody virtue. And there was this ancient idea of the unity of the virtues. You couldn't have one unless you had all. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we think about that, I mean, I really feel drawn to that view. But I've known people who were courageous. They had that virtue, and they weren't particularly humble. They didn't seem to have that virtue. So, you know, this ideal of perfection, you either have them all or you don't have any. You're either completely courageous or not at all. No, maybe it's something you can, it's more like a spectrum. It's not like a light switch on or off. It's more like a dimmer switch, right? Mm. You can grow in the direction of uh perceptiveness in the direction of courageousness in the in the direction of honesty in the direction of prudence um, and leaders we would think of, of all people we're going to follow somebody who is not virtuous is not wise certainly that that should be qualification number one 
right? Even before their technical expertise, before their other kinds of knowledge. So yeah, it's, let me mention one more thing, Scott. I had a college student visit from Madrid, Spain, not long ago, and he wanted to have breakfast and, and talk about philosophy. And so we went out to eat at a small restaurant near where I live. And his first question, as soon as he sat down, was not, how are the eggs here or are the pancakes any good? His first question was, what is wisdom? Uh, yeah, he got right to the point, right? <laughs> so we're sitting down. I don't even have my napkin up yet. He says, what is wisdom? And I gave him my answer. You know, it's embodied insight for living. And then I thought for a second. I said, you know what? It's two things often. It's guidance and guardrails. And he said, what are guardrails? As a Spanish speaker, he wasn't familiar with that. I said, you know, if you're up in the mountains and you're driving around up a mountain on a curvy mountain road, there's a metal railing on the side of the highway so your your car won't go over the side. Here, oh, guardrails, yes. I said, wisdom is about two things. It's guidance and it's guardrails. It's guidance to lead us where we should go and guardrails to keep us from going over the edge as we make our way there. He said, oh, I've never thought about it this way before. And I said, neither have I. (laughs) It's good to be asked questions because at our best, we think anew about something we think we've understood for a very long time. Well, that's profound. I mean, aside from... You know, the, the easy answer to his question, what is wisdom? Uh, you know, you, you could have certainly said it, it's the self-awareness to not ask hard questions before the coffee gets here. Um, but boy, by, by asking it and re-asking it in different contexts, it really yeah. helps us to kind of set the tone. And, and your, your notion of guidance and guardrails, this is exactly what leaders do at the yeah. best companies or, or the best leaders That's do right. it at their companies. Mm-hmm. That's right. You want to inspire people forward. You want to give them a vision, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. But you also want to help people know how not how not to make big mistakes along the way, how not to go wrong, um, and to embody both those things. It, it's it's a funny thing, Scott. I used to think of wisdom as a kind of knowledge. I mean, there there are two kinds of knowledge philosophers have taught us. There's propositional knowledge. You could you could know all about Paris but never have gone there. You know, so suppose you've read 50 books about Paris, you know, everything imaginable about, about Paris, France, but you've never gone. You can know a lot about Paris, but you don't really know Paris in a, a personal rather than a propositional sense. So philosophers talk about, you know, knowledge by description, the knowledge about Paris, knowledge by acquaintance, the knowledge of Paris you would get only by going there and living there and walking around and doing things there. Well, wisdom in our culture, we too often think of it as knowledge by description or knowledge by propositional statements as if, if you have in your head enough aphorisms and epigrams, clever sayings, you're a wise person. But, you know, a tape recorder, <laughs> can give you clever sayings. A, a bird can be taught to speak clever sentences. So, so wisdom must be more of that personal knowledge, knowledge by acquaintance mm. rather than the knowledge by description. And, and we try to convey it by wise sayings and we try to spark it by those sayings. But wisdom is not just those sayings. And right now in our culture, I think we have a lot of counterfeit wisdom everywhere. It's being bought and sold constantly in the self-help world, in the business world. And people think if they accumulate enough of these statements that are clever and catchy and sound right, that they're going to be wise. And it's something much deeper than that. Tom, I, I feel like you've just outed my newsletter. (laughs) <laughs> no, not yours. I've read yours. That's real wisdom. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's interesting to me because wisdom is, it seems to me like, like humility. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't claim it. It's something that's bestowed yeah. on you. That's observed yeah. about you by virtue of how you act and, and how you lead. Um, yeah. Yeah. and, and, um, and, and, and this notion that you, that you just brought up about really about the processing of knowledge, you know, because you can accumulate yeah. all of these quotes and, and, and know all of these philosophers' 
uh, like the back of your hand, but it's really, mm-hmm. it's, it's how you process the information and then apply it to your current situation. And that's, that's what a good leader does. It kind of takes stock of the world around her right. and, and says, okay, well, these are the things I know. And this is the situation uh, in which we find ourselves. And here's the best yeah. way to combine those two and help my people out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, absolutely right. You know, the the pursuit of wisdom is a lifelong thing. I, I remember reading a quote long ago. Someone said about someone else, he's a, a very wise man who lives like a fool. And I thought that's ironically funny, but it couldn't literally be true. And that's when I came to understand that wisdom is about embodiment. Wisdom is about how we live, not just what we know. Mm -hmm. If it is knowledge, like you said a, a minute ago, Scott, it's not the kind of thing you have so much as it's the kind of thing you are. And we, we don't, you know, I would, I would describe myself to anybody as a college graduate. I would describe myself if asked as having a PhD. But if somebody said to me, are you wise? I kind of understand why the Stoics had this concept of the sage and they didn't think they qualified (laughs) themselves, right? right? Because if you're wise at all, you have enough humility not to claim to be so. Right. And so that's right. a kind of an irony for the workplace, right? Like I'm going to come out and I'm going to sell wisdom to uh, General Motors or the Ford Motor <laughs> Company. Yeah, come to me. I'm wise and I'll help you be that as well. It's it's not that kind of a fungible possession, right? I can't just give it to somebody else for a fee. Um, so when people have hired me I, 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 to speak, I've, I've always said, look, I'm going to bring you the wisdom of the ages. Hmm. I'm not going to bring you my wisdom because it's still a work in process, but I'm going to bring you the wisdom of the ages as filtered through what I know and what I see around me in the world and what I see the need to be. And I've always wished, and I've said this in some of my talks around the world, I've given over 1,200 philosophy presentations, and, and I've often said I wish I could have a gigantic banner all the way across the stage behind me that says in huge letters, I could be wrong Mm. (laughs) because this is just my effort, just like Socrates, just like Plato, just like Aristotle. They were making it up as they went along, trying their best. But Emerson once pointed out, we treat them as if they are infallible oracles. No, they're just very smart people who can help us grapple with these issues that matter so deeply ourselves. And the more leaders who will try to grapple with wisdom and not just CEOs, not just, you know, the chairman or the founder, but, but everybody in leadership positions. Yeah. I think it would be, uh, uh, it would be a vaccination against so many mistakes that we see made in the business world, in the political world right now. If people could just consult the wisdom of the ages. Yeah. Uh, for new perspectives. Well, it's hard, Tom, because, I mean, people don't have a good recollection of what happened last year, let alone what happened <laughs> 3,000 years ago. It's um, very true. And and this is something, you know, that I, my personal crusade is to help people understand inspirations from literature and philosophy and history. And there's so much there's so much knowledge and, and learning that's been bound up that we can get a jump ahead of the competition yeah. simply yes. by being aware of other people's mistakes and avoiding those as we yeah. move forward. That's right. I mean, we, we don't have to make it all up from scratch, yeah. right? We, we don't have to think of our, our lives, our careers, our businesses as starting with the quintessential blank canvas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of stuff. It's almost like the great philosophers of the past have left us a treasure trove of wisdom. It's almost like they've, they've endowed us with a gigantic bank account, but we refuse to write checks on that account. Right. We're just going to try to, you know, make it all up ourselves. Yeah. Or we've forgotten our pin at the ATM. Uh, <laughs> right. Same kind right. of thing. Um, Tom, you mentioned before the, uh, the seven C's of success. Oh, yeah. Can you outline what those are for us? Well, that's what I discovered 
in response to the Buick and Oldsmobile guy. He wanted something deeper on uh, success. So I got to work. I got busy. I got busy in world wisdom literature. And I want to tell you, Scott, the last thing I expected was to discover in the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, in India, across the world, the same ideas about success. Mm. I, I, you know, all with beneath all the cultural differences, there's this amazing convergence of great minds through the centuries around a few ideas. And it didn't take me long. I, I was reading probably the most I've ever read in a short period of time for about six months. And I discovered seven universal conditions for success. For any challenge, whether you face it alone or you're doing it as a team with other people, these seven conditions apply. And I'll just, I'll just mention each really briefly. In any challenging situation, with any relationship, with any opportunity, with any challenge, we need first and foremost a clear conception of what we want to see happen in that situation. We need a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined, a a mental conception, a clear conception. You know, Aristotle used words like telos, the end, the target, the bullseye. Um, We need to bring, number two, a strong confidence to our pursuit of that goal. I've learned from championship athletes a really interesting lesson. Most people look to their circumstances to give them confidence. The championship athletes I've met have told me they have to bring their confidence to their circumstances. It's a very interesting reversal of perspective. So we need a clear conception of what we want to see happen. We need a a strong confidence uh, that we can attain the goal we've set for ourselves. We need a focused concentration on what it's going to take. You know, how do I break it down? If I want to be a certain place six months from now, where do I have to be two months from now? How about two weeks from now? What can I be doing today and tomorrow? Daunting goals become manageable objectives as we divide and conquer. So that's number three, a focused concentration. Number four, we need a stubborn consistency in pursuing our vision. Uh, the word consistency comes, comes from two Latin root words that just mean stand together. Do our Actions stand together with our words. Do the people in our on our team stand together or are we pulling apart? We need consistency. We need, number five, an emotional commitment to the importance of what we're doing. There's a lot of literature recently about resilience, about grit. That all comes from an emotional commitment to the importance of what we're doing, which has to do with our purpose, our vision, our mission, our emotional buy-in. We don't talk about the emotional side of things enough. Uh, in modern day business, we need an emotional commitment. Number six, we need a good character to guide us and keep us on a proper course. Again, guardrails as well as guidance. And number seven, the last one, and for some people the hardest, uh, we need a capacity to enjoy the process along the way. Anything that can be enjoyed, we need to relish it. We need to really love it. Now, there are going to be days where they're just tough things going on. You can't enjoy this day. You can't enjoy it. Well, wait, wait, there may be something about the day you can enjoy. It, 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 number seven doesn't say enjoy everything. It says cultivate a capacity to enjoy the process because the process will give you the results. Too many people wait to enjoy the results, but they never get the results because they haven't learned to love the process. So those seven conditions of success, clear conception, a strong confidence, a focused concentration, a stubborn consistency, an emotional commitment, a good character, a capacity to enjoy, they've changed my life, even though I discovered them just to be of help to other people. And if anybody wants to come to my website, Tom, V as in Victor Morris.com, there's up up at the top, they can click seven C's of success and get this list that we just, uh, we just talked about. That's fantastic, Tom. And, and I can't tell you how, how, how much I was smiling while you were saying that you couldn't see me, <laughs> but a lot of these uh, seven C's that you mentioned actually found their way into this little card that we used to get as employees of Ford Motor Company. Oh, it was uh, it, the the one Ford uh, plan was on one side, and then on the, the reverse was expected behaviors. 
And there were four sections for expected behaviors, and it was an acronym that's spelled out, F-O-R-D. Um, and, and F was foster functional and technical excellence. Does no one have a passion for our business and customers? Demonstrate and build functional and technical excellence. Ensure process discipline. Have a continuous improvement philosophy and practice. Right, that's, that's the first one. The second one is own working together. Believe in skilled and motivated people working together. Include everyone. Respect, listen to, help, and appreciate others. And build strong relationships and be a, a team player. Develop ourselves and others and communicate clearly, concisely, and candidly. Under our role model Ford values, show initiative, courage, integrity, and good corporate citizenship. Improve quality, safety, and sustainability. Have a can-do, find-a-way attitude and emotional resilience. And enjoy the journey and one another. Have fun, never at others' expense. And then the last section was about delivering results. Deal positively with our business realities. Develop compelling and comprehensive plans while keeping an enterprise view. Set high expectations and inspire others. Make sound decisions using facts and data. Hold ourselves and others responsible and accountable for delivering results and satisfying our customers. Mm. I mean, that, that just embodies so much of the, <laughs> these generations of wisdom and your seven C's of success. I mean, and, that's right. Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, I've often been amazed at how leadership groups respond to a talk on the seven C's, which I often call true success, uh, the art of achievement in times of change, the groups that get the most excited are the groups of people who've sort of been living these things without being able to articulate all the ideas. And they'll often come up to me afterwards and say, that's so good. You know, I've been intuitively living those things my whole life, but I didn't know how to put them into words to teach my direct reports and their direct reports these same things because not everybody is equally naturally good at this, but we can all become good if we understand the concepts, if we understand the ideas. Mm. Well, you know, that's, that's fascinating to me because it, it's, it's somewhat by intuition, you know, just by good judgment and, and having emulated the examples that you've seen in others. So to me, when, when you're conveying wisdom to others, you're not sitting down and saying, well, let me share some wisdom. Let me drop some wisdom on you right now. <laughs> The, the best leaders are simply lead by virtue of, of, of their, their character and of, of their own personal sense of morality and ethics and uh, the ability to know what to do and when. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, some of the ancient philosophers, uh, especially the Stoics, uh, used to talk about the importance of having a, a mentor in your own head, sort of a your ideal mentor. If there's somebody who's had a great effect on you in your life, somebody you consider to be wise or virtuous, a good person, you know, ask yourself, what would that person do in this situation? Mm-hmm. Or would I be proud of explaining to that person what I'm choosing to do here? Um, and some of the best leaders act as that kind of role model mm-hmm. uh, for the people around them. And some of the worst leaders well, we see how, you know, it, they, they can be pied pipers in a very different direction mm-hmm. and lead everybody in the direction of the self-destruction of the business and sometimes pulling a lot of the economy down around it. Uh, but, yeah, the leadership position is so important uh, that it's no surprise that philosophers through history have wanted to work with leaders. Plutarch was once asked, why do you why do you talk so much to people in leadership positions? And I love his answer. He said, well, look, imagine I could spend the same amount of time either digging a well for my family to have water or else building an aqueduct for all the families around us mm. to have water yeah. along with us. Which am I going to do? I'm going to build the aqueduct. He says, when I'm working with leaders, I'm spreading wisdom to not just that person, but to everyone they will lead. Mm. That's profound. That's yeah. profound. And and the best leaders, that's exactly what they do. They're, they view their most important job yeah. as training the next generation of leaders. 
That's right. That's right. Uh, it's funny how so much of our sloganistic culture sort of gets that right, but without exactly getting it right. The, earlier today, I was taking my dogs for a walk, and, and I was thinking about the fact that I had seen on social media somewhere a statement to the effect, leaders don't cultivate followers, they cultivate other leaders. And I thought, wait a minute, maybe that's being presented as a false choice. Don't they have to first cultivate followers in order to grow those followers into fellow leaders? So it's not an either or, mm. right? It's a both and. Yeah. But we have these little slogans that are catchy sayings. And if we really absorb the catchy slogans, we can get part of the formula wrong. Mm. Yes, leaders cultivate other leaders, but it's not that they don't cultivate followers. It's that they have to have followers and cultivate these followers to be fertile soil, to be open, to be eager in order to become leaders themselves. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, because, and, and it dovetails with a thought I, I just had, and that is, some some leaders maybe you know lacking wisdom um but certainly not lacking in the ability to get people to follow them that pied piper <laughs> mentality right. you were you were mentioning uh what they have is the power of charisma and right. when when exposed to wisdom versus charisma uh, and 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 kind of where we are as a public right now either as employees or as citizens or as uh, members of a, a family how do you see the role of wisdom and charisma kind of playing hand in hand yeah you can have certainly one without the other and and that's when charisma is at its most dangerous uh when it's operating without wisdom and how does it operate well uh there are very charismatic people who are pure manipulators. They learn how to manipulate others through those other people's fears, through their desires, through their prejudices, through their misunderstandings. They play, they know every note to play to, to, to create the song that's going to lure everybody in their direction. And they do it with energy. They sometimes do it with humor. They sometimes do it outrageously. They attract attention. And, and that's, that's charisma without, without wisdom. Now, wisdom without charisma can be a very small, quiet voice. And it sometimes takes one to know one. You know, the wise person will attract other wise people. You have to have at least a shred of wisdom in your own soul to recognize greater wisdom in another and be attracted to it. But when you can combine these two things, um, the, per, the, the wise person who has an energy flowing through them that's often described as charismatic, uh, the, the person who has judgment and perspective and balance and who bases everything they do on truth and goodness and, and beauty and unity, uh, but allows the energy of the universe to flow through them in a positive direction. That's where you combine the two things and you have the possibility of truly great things being accomplished. Mm. My gosh, you do sound like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except I do everything in a grammatically proper order. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, well, you know, what, what you were just saying there um, it reminds me of a passage from an old Sherlock Holmes story where Conan Doyle wrote, mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself, but talent yeah. instantly recognizes genius. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, we all come into this world as children, exploring the world and open to everything. And it's hard to explore for very long without catching some bits of wisdom, which then gives you a basis on which to recognize and learn more. So it's not as if anybody's hopeless, utterly hopeless. Where there's life, there's hope. But people fall for fake wisdom, what I, what I often call counterfeit wisdom and, and faux virtue. Uh, it's like counterfeit money. It has to look a lot like the real thing to fool anybody. 
And that's the same way with counterfeit wisdom. And we have a lot of that being bought and sold in our culture right now. And on some days, it kind of discourages me. And on other days, I say, no, no, no. It's just a sign of how desperate people are Mm. for the real thing. And that's a good sign. That's that's a great way of looking at it, Tom. I love that. You know, last week here, we talked with Harry Cohen. And I I think you know Harry. Uh, I know Harry. He's a great guy. He is. So we talked about heliotropic leadership, which has a lot yeah. to do with optimism, but it's, it's oh, yeah. more nuanced than optimism. But, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's Harry's thing. You know, I look at this kind of thing as a gift, right? Yeah. There, there are, there are faux philosophers and faux mm-hmm. self-help gurus out there, but it's a great sign for the industry. Yeah, it, it, it is. It really is. Now I'm always, it's sort of heartbreaking. When you hear of some best-selling author, some advice guru, when you hear from people who know this person one-on-one and they use various parts of the anatomy to describe this person, (laughs) and uh, I asked a a speaker's uh, agent not long ago about a very well-known character, and I heard the words, worst person (laughs) alive, and I thought, really, really? You know, it's a it's a sad thing when you know that there are folks out there, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, the mm-hmm. old expression, right? Yeah. Um, but but there have always been charlatans, there have always been con men, and there have always been the real deal, uh, the people who are truly wise. Whether it's somebody's grandmother, they grew up, I'll say to, often say to people, have you ever had a wise person in your life? Yes, my grandmother is often an answer. That's true. You know? Yeah. And so for too much of human history, those grandmothers' words of wisdom were not written down. We have the grandfathers, but we don't have enough of the grandmothers. And, and hopefully in our time, we're reversing that. We have many more wise women writing down what they've learned, trying to pass along what they've learned. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, everyone's grandmother seems to have said <laughs> you have two ears and one mouth, use them in that proportion. And yeah, I, I found out in doing a little research that was actually said by Socrates. So yeah, it, we get it from Epictetus. We get it from Socrates, but actually I think we get it from both their grandmothers. See, there you go. It's, it's the grandmother <laughs> effect again. Um, but Tom, that leads me to the natural question. Does, does wisdom require reaching a certain age? In other words, are age and wisdom necessarily, uh, a, a thing that have to happen together? You know, I know I've known a lot of wise old people and I've known a lot of foolish older people. I would say there is a correlation between age uh, and experience, and there's a correlation between experience and, and wisdom. So experience provides what philosophers would call a necessary but not sufficient condition for wisdom. It's up to us how we use that experience. I, I like to say uh, – I, I live at this point in my life, I'm 69 years old, just turned 69 uh, a week ago. And I say, I live perched high atop a mountain of my own mistakes from which I can see far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've used my mistakes. I've used my experiences to develop wisdom. Not everybody does that, but we can occasionally come across a 15-year-old a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old who who seems to have a very wise perspective. They've used even their limited experience to spin it into the gold of wisdom. Yeah. We can all do that. Whatever stage of life we're at, we can all do that. But too few people take the time required. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just it, Tom. You know, I've, I've been told by a number of people that I am an old soul uh, and, and, and that I've perpetually been about 67 years old since, <laughs> since my teenage years. Um, well, we have, uh, we have Justin here who would like to participate. Justin, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hi, Scott. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for inviting me up and thanks for this conversation. Uh, I find it fascinating and, 
my my question or I guess interjection of this idea is um, looking at talking about wisdom versus talking with wisdom. And I find mm-hmm. this conversation so far has been a combination of both of those. Mm-hmm. But as apps like this um, that, that I'm currently on and others happen, I find there's a lot of talking about wisdom or talking mm-hmm. about philosophers. But mm-hmm. where, like, I don't know if people realize that talking about wisdom is not the same as talking with or living with wisdom. Yeah. And I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's that's a very astute comment, uh, Justin. You're so right. It's much easier to talk about wisdom than it is to talk wisely. Um, it's much easier to talk about philosophers or about philosophy than it is to be philosophical your, yourself. I, I even knew people when I was, I did graduate school at Yale for six years in two different departments, philosophy and religious studies. And I was shocked to discover that there are people who get a PhD in theology in order to avoid spiritual questions in their own lives. There are people who get a PhD in philosophy in order to avoid the hard work of becoming wise. It's much easier to just be able to list what Seneca said. Here's what Marcus Aurelius said. Here's what Epictetus said. Oh, and Confucius said something much like that. That's easy. What's hard is digging deep in the resources of your own life and your own experience and coming to grips with your vulnerabilities, with your flaws, with your weaknesses, as well as your strengths, with being able to say, man, I messed up there big time, and here's what I've learned from it. So you're absolutely right. To talk about wisdom is much easier uh, than, than to talk with wisdom about any given topic. And for me as a philosopher, as soon as I realized the difference in graduate school, I said, I can never let the study be a substitute for the practice of wisdom. Mm. I love that, Tom. And and Justin, your, your, your point is so well taken, particularly in our digitally saturated age. You know, I, I was having a conversation just last night with my 17-year-old, trying to impart upon him the wisdom of ages that we fathers have accumulated to, to help to help him avoid the same mistakes that I've made, and and realizing that you know he's he's got to make his own mistakes too. But as as part of the conversation, I said, you know, you spend an awful lot of time on your phone, and look, I do too. I think we all have screen fatigue right about now, particularly after a year of the pandemic. And and when we spend such time doom scrolling and commenting and trolling and, and doing all of these inane things that require uh, less thought than a millisecond, we're avoiding the kind of introspection and reflectiveness that w- we once had. And, and, and look, <laughs> our parents, our grandparents probably said the same thing about television and radio before us. Uh, you can guarantee that back in Gutenberg, Gutenberg's time, people were saying that about books. That th- yeah. This takes us away from the, the self-reflection that's so important. But, but I think it's absolutely essential, particularly now, to set some time aside. I, I tell this to leaders all the time. Find some time to reflect, to, to, to be self-aware and to understand, you know, where the improvement may lie. And, and Tom, that's your, your, your mountain of mistakes. There it is. Not everyone takes yeah. the time. People are running from their mountains of mistakes. Yeah, I, I, I'm just impressed that, uh, you know, our, 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 our conversation partner here, Justin, I'm, I'm impressed with you, man, that you, that you saw this, that you recognize this, because it seems to be a rare person these days who will, use social media and come away saying what what you said, you know, noticing the difference between people just kind of tossing around ideas about wisdom, ideas about meaning, ideas about life, and and people who actually seem to embody these ideas. And uh and and even if very imperfectly, who are at least struggling with the right stuff. You know, I mean, I remember when I first learned to play tennis, that I 
I read books about it first and thought I knew a lot about, about how to play tennis before I ever walked off to a tennis court and what, boy, a different experience that was, right? <laughs> uh, and it's the same thing with wisdom, right? You can read about it endlessly, but it's walking onto the court, holding a racket and picking up a ball. All of a sudden, everything gets real. Yeah. Well, and, and look, that's why it's so fun to have these kinds of discussions because we don't get this level of thoughtfulness and, and discourse on a platform like Twitter, for example. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's far, it's far too rare. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting what we said about, about age and wisdom. I knew a guy once, uh, Roland Bainton. He was the most famous historian of the, Christian church, uh, alive in his time. And I, I knew him when he was about 90 years old. I was at a dinner party once with him and a bunch of people, very prominent people. I was lucky as a graduate student to be invited to this dinner. We had a Muppet there from Jim Henson's workshop and the Muppeteer. They were having dinner with us at the table and the Muppet was at the table. Uh, and Roland Bainton was having the funniest conversation I ever heard with the Muppet. Uh, so here's this 90 year old scholar and he and the Muppet are just going on and on about stuff. And it was hilariously funny. I was reminded of a, of a podcast I heard the other day, uh, a, a professor at University of California, Berkeley, uh, who says that children explore, we exploit, we need to learn to explore once more. The adult mindset we need to Get back that beginner's mind that the Zen folks talk about and, and, and live that anew. And then no matter how old we are, we can learn. Mm. Well, that, that, that is so true because you think about how a child approaches life. They're always asking why. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a wonderful management technique is if you can get through, you know, three to four to five levels of why you can really <laughs> drill down to help someone understand, well, why they've dug in on this particular. Uh, thing or or why they're pursuing a particular project or uh, why they even chose to be part of your company. It's a great yeah. exercise. Now, Tom, I, I, I've got to I've got to ask this question because I have to imagine everyone listening here is thinking the same thing at that dinner. Which Muppet was it? <laughs> it was the one who never made it onto TV. That's why he was hanging out with philosophers and theologians. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. That's great. He was like a Captain America or something. I'd never seen him before, but he was, he was hilariously funny and they were actually talking ideas and everybody else was saying, I can't believe Roland Baton is talking to a, pu a hand puppet, you know. <laughs> that, well, you know, in some cases it might have been a more elucidating conversation than with yeah. some corporate titans. So yes, absolutely. Maybe knows? I should bring a Muppet with me to my next corporate dinner, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, anything else before uh, we let you go? Yes. Uh, you know, as you were talking about um, the like the beginner's mindset, and I think as Tom, you mentioned uh, that quote about exploring. And I find exploration incredibly valuable. And uh, lately I've been thinking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And um, mm -hmm. for those that aren't aware, basically looking at um, our level of confidence in something um, as mm -hmm compared to our level of experience with something. And right, immediately right. we, you know, shoot up with a ton of confidence in the beginning. And we're like, yes, we know everything. And then as we get a little bit more knowledge, we kind of fall back down and like, oh, maybe I don't know everything. And then eventually dipping all the way back down until like I know nothing before coming <laughs> back up to, okay, well, I, I'm gaining more confidence as I get more experience and it kind of balances out. I think the yeah. issue is, the beginner's mindset, we go, yes, I know everything. But then the reason we stop exploring, or at least for myself, I, I used to do this, is because that despair comes in, that, man, I I didn't realize what I didn't know. And we don't like that right. feeling, so we stop going further. And I think right. becoming comfortable with that and recognizing that as you feel despair, as you aren't confident in something, pushing through that because that's part of you gaining knowledge feeling that yeah. despair. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. just as you were talking about that exploration, that kind of came up within me. That's nice. a great insight, Justin. I mean, the hills and valleys of progression, you know, with every skilled behavior, uh, 
There are going to be plateaus. There are going to be times where you think you're falling backward. There's not always going to be that positive incremental uh, growth higher and higher and higher. You know, one of the other pieces of advice in our day that you hear a lot of people say, especially in leadership connections, is they say, get outside your comfort zone. You've got to learn to get outside your comfort zone. It's important to get outside your comfort zone. And usually we're being told that by people standing on the stage right in the middle of their own comfort zone as public speakers. Well, the, the real truth is, and this is something you alluded to, we need to learn to take our comfort zone with us wherever we go. No matter what the new challenge or new adventure is, if you're going through that stage of being discouraged, bring your comfort zone with you. Know that that's normal at various stages along the way. Uh, you know, be like the great, uh, the great performers in any skilled activity. Don't depend on your circumstances. Bring the confidence, bring the comfort with you to those circumstances, and then you can progress. Mm, that is so great, Tom. It's, it's really about, Self-confidence and believing in yourself. And it, it sounds yeah. trite and, and like pablum, but it, it's fundamentally true. Um, and, and I did a book back in, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go Sorry. ahead. Go ahead. I did a book in 1997 called If Aristotle Ran General Motors. And the book ends with what I call the two great keys to leadership greatness, humility and nobility in balance, mm-hmm. a noble sense of what we're doing, the importance of it, the greatness of it, but a humble openness to getting it wrong sometimes, mm-hmm. needing other people to help us get it right, to needing the voices of others in every possible way. Uh, this one without the other is not a recipe for success. Uh, and nobility without humility is arrogance. Mm-hmm. Humility without nobility is impotence. Who am I to do this? You know, uh, but both together can can be magical. Tom, this is wonderful. It hits on uh, our interview from two weeks ago with Marilyn Gist, who talked about leader humility and um, this notion of the absence of arrogance or, you know, certainly the balance. And um, one thing that she brought out with respect to leader humility was recognizing the dignity of others. And, you know, it's it's not just a kind of, uh, you know, deplatforming yourself or, you know, taking yourself off of the pedestal, but it's also recognizing that there are others out there who are uh, just as valid in their viewpoints as you are. That's right. They had grandmothers, too. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Well, Justin, thank you for uh, joining us here on the stage. Great questions. Great insight. And I I should note one other thing, too, and that is... um, Justin mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect, and I just want to remind people that the first rule of Dunning-Kruger Club is you don't know you're in Dunning-Kruger Club. (laughs) I like that. That's good. Oh. oh, so true. You know, so true. And it's, you know, from Lake Wobegon where, you know, everybody's above average to all the psychological <laughs> experiments where actually people, you know, almost everybody thinks they're an above average driver. And it just kind of, it's, it's, it's a pervasive thing. You want people to be confident, mm-hmm. but you don't want people to be deluded, right? <laughs> Big difference. That's right. That's right. It reminds <laughs> me of uh, George Carlin, you know, wonderful political philosopher that he was. Uh, in, in his comedy, he said, hey, imagine how dumb the average person is and just realize that half of the people are dumber than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I like that. It's a little scary to, to leave the house it, when it you think be. like that, but uh, <laughs> very wise. Yeah. Well, uh, Tom, we haven't mentioned uh, too many of your books here. You, you just did mention um, If Aristotle Ran General Motors. You also did If Harry Potter Ran General Electric. And <laughs> most recently, uh, Plato's Lemonade Stand. Oh, it's my, it may be my favorite book I've ever done. And it came out just right before the shutdown with the pandemic. It's how to deal with disruptive and difficult change in our lives. Actually, the first half of the book is how to, how to handle the change that happens to you. And part two of the book is how to deal with the change that will happen only because of you. So it's about, it's about grappling with change and it's It's about initiating change. The old saying, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, I heard it a hundred times growing up as a kid. Nobody ever said how to do it. It turns out the philosophers had a lot of wisdom. 
that book is is I I'd love it if everybody gets to see if Plato uh, gets to see Plato's Lemonade Stand because it's full of funny stories. It's full of the wisdom of the philosophers, and it's changed my own life. Uh, I wrote it over a fifteen year period. I wrote it twenty five different times, six different titles. I finally got it right, and that's the version you can get on Amazon. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's impressive. So it's it's got to be good. I mean, it's it's handcrafted lemonade over a fifteen year period. It's it's vintage. That's right. <laughs> no calories, but great taste. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, Tom Morris, you can find all of his books at uh, tomvmorris.com, and of course on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. Tom. Thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership and imparting your wisdom on all of us. Oh, Scott, it's always a joy. Anytime I get a chance to talk with you, I feel like you're a real, you're a real brother in our, our quest for wisdom and to, to bring a little bit of it more to the world than the world's normally accustomed to. So thank you for all that you do oh, to spread wisdom. You're very kind. Every day, true leaders seek to know more than they did the day before. But wisdom is more than knowledge. It's measured in how we apply our understanding in practical ways, in service to others. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more and become more, for you are a leader.